When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, yeah, Tom. Well, uh, what caught my eye here was the Deputy Attorney General Monaco saying that she wanted to revisit this question of whether DPAs and NPAs are suitable for repeat corporate offenders. In this episode of Compliance in the Weeds, Tom and Matt continue their exploration by the recent speech by Lisa Monaco on white-collar enforcement. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance into the Weeds. Today, we're going to continue our exploration of the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco speech last week. Uh, Today, Matt wrote about uh, yet another part of her speech, deferred prosecution agreements and non-prosecution agreements, DPAs or NPAs, and how... The Department of Justice may be looking at alternative uh, resolution strategies, tools, or techniques. Uh, So, Matt, what was it that, uh, I guess maybe we should probably start off with uh, a a summary of uh, her remarks and then perhaps some of the pros and cons of both DPAs and NPAs. Uh, Yeah, Tom. Well, uh, what caught my eye here was the Deputy Attorney General Monaco saying that she wanted to revisit this question of whether DPAs and NPAs are suitable for repeat corporate offenders. And uh, I just am captivated by the idea that, okay, well, what would that actually be? Um, To be clear for everybody listening, Ms. Monaco did not say she wants to end DPAs and NPAs for businesses that are repeat offenders. She merely said, is this really the right vehicle for repeat offenders, because you could make the argument, and many people have, that maybe if it's just a DPA and an NPA, um, even with a monetary penalty, even with disgorgement of ill-gotten profits, even with compliance reforms that you might have to agree to for a period of two, three, five years, something like that, maybe that could be perceived as just the cost of doing business for a company, and so is that really going to change the behavior in the the fabric of the company? I think that's a valid question. And if the answer is no, it's not going to change it. It is. They are just the cost of doing business. Then all right, we need to have a sterner sort of a punishment for repeat offenders. And then that brings me back to, well, what would that be? Because right away you would think if it's not – a deferred or non-prosecution agreement, I would assume it's going to be something like a criminal indictment, and I, I would then also assume a subsequent trial, a conviction, and whatnot. And I think there are a lot of implications to that, an indictment and a conviction, that we would need to think through. Uh, and I'm not sure that companies would be comfortable with that at all. And then suddenly they start to wonder, should we self-disclose this misconduct or not? Uh, if they don't, what about the role of the whistleblower lobby out there, which is much more active and mature than it was, say, 15 years ago? So, Tom, there's an awful lot going along around here. And 
This is just on this question of forming a group to think about what to do with DPAs and NPAs. Um, Ms. Monaco proposed various other policy shifts that are going to happen about enforcement of corporate misconduct. We can talk about them another day, but right now, just for DPAs and NPAs, there is this question. What do we do for repeat offenders if this vehicle for resolution isn't working? And that's what she's trying to look into. Well, Matt, um, you have, I think, correctly summarized where we're at. And what we don't know is, are there other alternatives? So I was trying to think through that question. And one thing that came to mind is some type of increased government uh, oversight. Now, last week, the Federal Trade Commission announced a policy shift so that if a company has sustained a violation and have agreed to some type of settlement, the FTC would require pre-approval before any merger or acquisition uh, after the settlement. So that if a company basically had one and a trust or in a competitive uh, settlement agreement, they would have to get FTC pre-approval. Uh, to move forward rather than present the terms um, after, the, after the fact. So perhaps there could be something uh, greater um, oversight in a couple of uh, recidivist cases where the Department of Justice has extended a deferred prosecution agreement. They have put on additional uh, financial penalties and uh, additional oversight requirements. We currently have a monitor not an FCPA monitor and not a DOJ monitor, but a court monitor in the ZTE case who has indicated to the judge he reports to that the company is out of violation, or excuse me, out of, out of compliance with the deferred prosecution agreement. And the monitor wants to extend the monitorship another three to five years, although I would note the Department of Justice is actually supporting the company's position in that case. So there are additional, uh, I don't want to say punitive actions the DOJ could take, but there are additional oversight steps short of either uh, you either plead guilty or or go to trial situation. Um, But those other alternatives are more onerous and they do provide more oversight by, by the Department of Justice uh, if they want to move towards assuring that companies continue uh, to implement compliance solutions that currently are in DPAs and NPAs and don't end everything when the DPAs or NPAs uh, conclude, such as, as you wrote in your blog post, terminating chief compliance officers or, or cutting back on compliance uh, initiatives, uh, I'm not sure I can see anything other than something more onerous. Any thoughts on what might be down the road or other alternatives? Well, I have been trying to give some thought to this. And so, Tom, you know, when you and I last spoke a couple of days ago doing that emergency podcast about Lisa Monaco, and we mentioned very briefly uh, this idea of what to do about DPAs or NPAs, you had suggested the idea of what had happened to Wells Fargo with all of its many, many woes, is that the Federal Reserve stepped in and put an asset cap freeze on Wells Fargo. And could something like that maybe work as punishment here? Well, no. That's my, I've given that more thought. And I think 
an, an asset freeze might be something that, you know, essentially it will cap the growth of the company. That might work in the banking world, but I don't see how that could be all that feasible for non-financial companies when most of your assets are not going to be tied up in cash or some sort of cash equivalent. Um, you know, if for whatever reason, Wells Fargo bumped up against its asset cap, it could just get rid of its cash. It could sell something or other. But if you are a manufacturer or a mining concern, a lot of your assets are going to be in physical things like property. So if the value of the property pushes up and it bumps up against an asset cap, then what? You sell the building or you sell the mine? Like I, I, and never mind the fact that you'd have to find a buyer and you'd have to do it fairly quickly. And that's not how real estate deals work. So an asset cap might be an intriguing idea for financial firms that run into trouble, but I don't see that working outside of the financial sector. Um, here's my thought about the Federal Trade Commission and its assertions that it's going to be more bold with antitrust oversight. Cause I saw that too. And I wondered, well, could that work here? And when I say here, I'm, I'm still primarily thinking of, say, the FCPA context. You are a repeat FCPA offender. The DPA or the NPA clearly hasn't stuck. It's not working. What could we do? Could, uh, could the government in theory use something like what the Federal Trade Commission is saying? We're going to have more aggressive merger reviews and pre- prevent you from growing, uh, as a punishment. I mean, I guess somebody could make that argument, except you're using an antitrust vehicle to drive down anti-corruption road. And I'm not really sure that is copacetic. I can't envision a world where something like that would not be challenged in court immediately. That, uh, you know, you, Justice Department, punishing us for FCPA, you can't use an antitrust statute to bust up our proposed merger or make us divest. Um I, I just there's no way that sort of sanction doesn't end up in court immediately and then we're tied up for years as we try and figure it out. I would guess. Maybe I'm wrong, and if I am, somebody call in and let us know. Um so the only other thing, Tom, that I had struck my cross my radar. I could stop you there because when uh my last corporate position we had a monitor who essentially did that. He said that he had to approve every contract over one million dollars. Um, not that a million dollars is not a lot of money, but in the energy industry, country managers have that kind of signing authority. Um, so I've seen that model used. But would that be extended to, could could he invalidate a merger deal? Well, this was an FCPA matter, a monitorship rather. So he was looking at contracts for corruption issues. Yeah, Sure. So there could be that kind of oversight. Yeah, and that I can certainly see that. There could be, um, and I, I don't think that would be, I mean, that's nobody's idea of a good time, but uh, I don't see that that's anything out of the norm for a monitor if they want to try and be muscular about it. And certainly in the more emboldened monitor policy that Deputy AG Monaco is talking about, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. But uh, the idea that you might try and cap growth as a punishment, um, that I don't see is like, I, I, maybe it could be legal and pass muster somehow, but 
I can't for the life of me imagine a company wouldn't try and challenge the legality of that in court. But Tom, what I was going to suggest is the only other thing that I've seen lately that intrigued me, we have to go back to the Credit Suisse FCPA enforcement action. And the one part of that deal that you and I had not talked about was what the Swiss regulators did with Credit Suisse. The Swiss regulators did weigh in and say that they were going to have veto authority over any business partners or any expansion into high risks, the countries that Credit Suisse might want to do. So if Credit Suisse was looking to enter a high-risk market or work with a high-risk intermediary, the federal banking authorities in Switzerland, whose name escapes me, uh, they said that they were going to reserve the right to swoop in and say, no, 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 we're not going to let you do that. I mean, maybe the fraud section could do that in the United States. Um, I, are they qualified to render that kind of a judgment? I don't know. Would that actually work across many different industries? I'm not sure. Swiss regulators could probably do it in banking because banking's such a large industry over there. We're a very different economy. So I'm still stuck on a whole lot of what's the extra remedy other than a more aggressive monitor? And I mean, that's, that, that is going to be an extra pain, but I'm still not sure that's going to be sufficient for what we're talking about. Well, uh, the other thing, Matt, I was thinking about in the context of your article and uh, Dag Monaco's remarks is what's the, what's the purpose of punishment under the FC or a fine and penalty under the FCPA? Is it to punish is it to deter? Is it to put bad companies out of business? Is it uh, to stop recidivism? Is there a larger goal of making the world freer of bribery and corruption? Not free. Um, I'm not sure we've ever had that kind of uh, discussion on compliance into the weeds, but um, there are also you know, different policy goals in in your resolution, and it seems that uh, the deputy attorney general has moved um, a little more aggressively towards punishment because she seems to feel that that is not the current uh, lighter touch from the Trump administration. DOJ uh, is not getting uh, the result they want. Have you thought about any of those questions? Uh, I mean, I have, but people smarter than me have thought about them. And one of those people smarter than me, I would say, is SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw. And Tom, you and I have talked about her pronouncements about policy, uh, monetary penalties in the past. Um, Now, I understand that Commissioner Crenshaw is talking about civil enforcement, and she's talking about publicly traded firms. Um, But she was very emphatic in a speech she gave earlier this year. It's like, Penalties are there to punish you for breaking the law. What do you think is this is all about? And that's not a point to be dismissed. And she sort of did wave away the typical opposition that all you're doing is punishing shareholders today for misconduct that executives and shareholders in the past committed. And she basically said, well, you know, the corporation is the thing and the corporation has been around and that's the thing that broke the law. So we're going to punish the corporation through a penalty. Um, that's not to be dismissed. On the other hand, there is certain logic to the idea that corporations don't violate the law. The people do. So then we would do what exactly? We would maybe punish the executives who were overseeing the company at the time of the misconduct, like 
axe the CEO's retirement benefits, which, to be honest, everybody, I think that would be a very intriguing idea. I, I think we should talk about that a lot. That would certainly light the fire under a lot of CEOs that they're going to have to think about this if their equity awards or their retirement pay suddenly goes up in smoke because they weren't paying attention to their subordinates. That's going to get leadership's attention. That would be an interesting idea. Penalize the executive rather than the um, corporation might be something that works. Um, but really, ultimately, if we're supposed to be worried about changing corporate behavior to avoid repeat offenses, then maybe monetary penalties themselves aren't the ideal vehicle for that because it's, you know, for a large company, it's just money. They are always going to have it. It's more about curbing the authority or somehow putting personal jeopardy on the senior executives who are running the business to be more aware of it um, or curtailing the business's ability to get into trouble in the future. Um, You know, Tom, we don't have a good answer and we should all go back to where we were at the start here that Lisa Monaco, all she has done is said she's going to form a committee within the department to try and figure these answers out. But as you can see, like, I don't you and I don't have a good answer for those questions yet. Uh, so I'm, I don't know. I think a committee to study it would be a good move. Matt, the, uh, the second part of your closing section in your blog, uh, after you talked about the uh, committee uh, or group that uh, Deputy Attorney General Monaco is going to convene, really dealt or dealt with Erickson. So I was wondering if maybe we could conclude with a, a few remarks about what might happen to Erickson? Are they going to be a guinea pig for a new trial effort by the Department of Justice? Um, or where you might think the DOJ might go in terms of just simply extending out the monitorship and assess ad- assessing an additional penalty above the $1.06 billion penalties and gorge- disgorgement already paid by the company? We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Well, that's interesting. Um, although quickly before I get to Erickson, I do want to say one other good point that was raised over the weekend from a business professor or business law professor at Indiana University, Todd Haw. He said that, uh, whatever committee the Justice Department is going to put together to study these issues, could we please have compliance professionals and business ethics professionals from the outside? also participate in this Justice Department review board or review committee. I think that's an excellent idea. And if anyone from the Justice Department is listening to us, please steal Professor Hawes' idea and put it in a force because that would make a lot of sense. But back to Erickson. Uh, yes, Erickson has disclosed that the Justice Department sent it a letter saying, we believe you have violated the terms of your deferred prosecution agreement and punishments will now be forthcoming. I, th- that I think would be very instructive for the rest of us to see, okay, how would a recidivist be treated if they aren't going to get a DPA or an NPA or they're going to get a DPA plus? Well, plus what? Um, that is essentially what Erickson is going to go through right now because they violated their DPA. Um, so I think a company that had gone through the DPA process completely and then violates the FCPA again, we haven't had a company yet 
go through the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. It was only formed four years ago. We haven't had somebody go through the whole thing and then violate the FCPA all over again. So the closest we've come so far is Ericsson, where they've been called out that they flubbed their DPA. So what's the punishment going to be? Although if it's just more monetary penalties and just more time with your compliance monitor, is that not the cost of doing business trap that we had talked about about 10 minutes ago here? It kind of sounds like it would be. Um, But what would be interesting to me, Tom, is that this DPA was only signed two years ago. So the executives who are in charge now, like this happened on your watch that you weren't living up to it. So presumably if we're holding people accountable, we know who they are and they haven't fled the scene yet. So is that going to be what happens? I'm not sure. I will be eagerly looking forward to see what happens with Ericsson, to see if we can read more tea leaves after that. It uh, looks like we're both going to be able to continue to mine Deputy Attorney General Monaco's speech for some additional uh, issues, and we may uh, actually have to come back with another Compliance Into the Weeds podcast. We can always go further into the weeds, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds going to link to Matt's blog post in our show notes, so check that out for additional information. I'd also like to tell you about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking in Compliance, where with my co-host Karsten Tams, we take a look at the social engineering tool of design thinking and how it can create greater efficiency and effectiveness in your compliance program. So check out Design Thinking in Compliance and post every other Wednesday. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.